Hey, everybody. Thank you for listening to Swarfcast. Before we start, we have a quick favor to ask you. If you love the show, please rate it and write a review on your podcast app or tell somebody about it. It really makes a difference for us and we'd appreciate it. Okay, on with the show. We supply um, components for the marine sector, which is commercial diving requirements. And uh, one of the things that we developed four or five years ago was a stainless steel dive helmet. The whole shell is stainless steel. This is Swarfcast. I'm Noah Graff, here with my co-host Lloyd Graff. Today's podcast is part two of an interview we did with Alec Mandis, chief executive of Accord Precision, the largest machine component manufacturer in New Zealand. Over the years, Accord has strived to set itself apart by developing a diverse group of niche products. One example is a stainless steel dive helmet made from investment casting, which took the company many years of R&D to produce successfully. Looking for a screw machine, rotary transfer machine, or CNC machine? Graf Pinkert's got you covered. When you're buying any used machine, you're taking a risk. So it's important to buy from someone who knows their stuff and who is going to give you straight information about what you're buying. Graf Pinkert is a family-owned firm that's been dedicated to selling great machine tools to the turn parts industry for 75 years. It specializes in the top multi-spindle brands, including Index, Schutte, Gildemeister, Tornos, ZPS, Acme, and Wickman. They also sell a variety of other types of used equipment, such as CNC Swiss, CNC turning centers, and parts washers. Machine tools are complicated. If you're going to buy one, you should go to people who are knowledgeable and committed to the industry. Learn more at www.graffpinkert.com. That's www.graffpinkert.com. I was looking on your website and I saw some of the, uh, the blogs and products you guys are making and I saw a diving helmet. Yes. Can you explain that a little bit? What are you guys doing with that? We, we supply um, quite a lot of uh, components for the marine sector, which is commercial diving requirements. And uh, one of the things that we developed four or five years ago was a stainless steel dive helmet. The whole shell is stainless steel. So this is one here. Oh, yeah. Bring it over. So this helmet here is an investment casting and um can you see that whoa that looks like a diving helmet from like the 1800s or something well the the old helmets used to be a bronze and uh, copper actually i think originally i think 20 30 years ago they went to a one from fiberglass or glass fiber which is a yellow helmet that you might see at the top there in the background This, this is just the shell, it's glass fiber, and this is made uh, in the US. And this was developed to replace the traditional uh, heavy helmets made from uh, copper and, bron- and brass and bronzes back yeah. then. But there's a move back to some of these more durable helmets in harsher conditions. They give a lot of beating you know, if they're working on, um, in, on oil rigs and they get hammered around. Interesting. These can get damaged. These are the most popular helmets today. 
So it just depends on what you're doing. But it, the, the, the stainless steel is the new thing. Stainless steel is the new thing. And the divers are quite um, traditional kind of divers will use what their buddies are using or what their father used. And they don't like to change too quickly. So introduction of new products takes time in that sector. How did you end up making diving helmets? Well, we were really supplying into that sector because we were in brasses and bronze materials and castings. We were, we were really making cast, sand castings going back, you know, 15, 20 years ago for the, for this sector. And they then wanted to go to a more durable helmet and they said, well, can you make one out of stainless steel? And we said, well, I'm sure we can. <laughs> We, we went into that sector and it took us, um, I think it took us three years to develop years. this product. Yes. So they went to you and they gave you, they gave you the assignment and said, you guys engineer this. Yes. Back then you could um, simulate it, you could print it, you could make it you know, as a, as a, um, for prototype purposes. And it was done by our customer like that. And then they said, no, but now we want to make it commercially. Can you make it? Hmm. And we started, and I can tell you, um, it took, can remember many late nights <laughs> working with this helmet. And because it's an investment casting, we had to make the wax mold, as you might know the process, where we needed to make the wax first, so then we could ceramic it, plaster it, melt the wax out and leave the ceramic shell so we could pour the stainless into it to make the actual mold for the helmet, this thing here. And there were countless times. And you were involved in this hands-on the whole process? I was hands-on. Even though I'm not an engineer, I was hands-on with my engineers and the foundry. And we worked on it for years. And we failed many times. But the one thing we did is we never gave up. We never said we can't do it. We said it's going to be difficult, and we persevered, and eventually we were able to cast this helmet you see behind me. We now make it every month, you know, with um, standard procedures and processes and documented and temperature controls and all of the things that we had to learn by trial and error in the early days. Yes, we had good foundrymen, but even the best foundrymen struggled with this product. It's a very complex product to me to cast. Well, it seems really beautiful. My question though is, you know, as a business person, you having to spend a lot of R&D and blood, sweat and tears on this project, I'm assuming it was a pretty lucrative reward when you finally were able to get it? Or, I mean, how do you decide, like, is this creative, really cool endeavor worth it? Or should we just you know, make parts that we can make a bunch of money on? Or, or is it not that simple? It's not that simple. Sometimes it's, it's um, luck, um, but these days we're a bit more sophisticated in terms of how we pick our new products and who we work with and where we'll spend our money. Back then, that was a real challenge to all of us, both the foundry and us and, and our customer. And we wanted to be one of the first in the world to be able to do this product. It's been tried elsewhere and uh, not successful. So we're very proud of this product. Yes, it cost us a lot of money and a lot of blood, sweat and tears. 
and we were hoping that this product would be large volumes in time. But it's not, it's just niche product. It's a niche area. And in fact, in retrospect, that's exactly what we do today. It was a good decision back then, but we, we, we had some luck on our side in that we were determined and, and we had some really good people who worked with us who were able to work out how to make this product. Some very clever engineers to work out how to make this product. And I would guess that the effort in developing a successful diving helmet gave you knowledge that you've used on other products. Correct, absolutely correct. See, the thing, the thing is with this product, and, and, and it also helps us a lot, was when we work with a new customer and they have a complex product, and, then, and they may have been having problems with it through their current supplier or where they're getting it from, and they see our capability and they say, wow, you guys made that helmet. And you guys do the whole helmet, the whole... Yes, we work with a foundry, very closely with the foundry, investment casting here in New Zealand, who, who do this, the mold and the helmet. And we do all the machine yeah. the accessories that go with it. There are a number of accessories. I'm, I'm pointing here on the on what's called a side block, which controls the airflows, et cetera. We, we work with that. We make all of that here. So we make a lot of other stuff that goes with this helmet. What I'm saying is that, yes, it is, it, it did teach us a lot. And since we've got into the medical device manufacturing in the last five years, that's where we've got our FDA registration and we, we make hospital stands like this one here. Yeah, I was going to ask you what that one is. That's interesting. You can see that there. So basically, this bit, we do a lot of these uh, components that go into making this stand and to, to take these products that need to be moved into hospitals. And our customer makes these. But we make this transportation device to move their products in and around hospitals and nursing homes and other facilities. So to qualify for that, that's where we learned even more about process control. We learned about how do you develop a product? How do you control that process? How do you, how do you go from concept to prototyping through validation to production and manufacturing and traceability and document history control and all the things that are required in a higher risk environment. Because you know, medical companies and dive companies and people in that sector are very risk averse. Mm. So they need those kind of assurances that your process is robust, in control, well managed has statistical process control. So you're saying that the medical people saw you having created that diving helmet and they said, whoa, if you guys are responsible enough to make this, we can trust you with our product. Is that sort of what happened? That's part of the background, yeah. That, that was one of the criteria. When they looked at us and they said... That is so interesting. Yeah, you know, you've got all the ISO accreditations and you've got all these things, but can you really do this product and can you get FDA registration? You know, some companies take four or five years to get FDA registration because it's a, it's quite a rigorous process. But fortunately for a court, we had systems and processes in that go back a long way. We had statistical process control in this factory 40 years ago. It's not a new thing for us. We do it every day, day in, day out. And the same with ISO registrations. They've been, we've had them for a long time. And and with that, we were able to qualify and get ISO 13485 
medical device accreditation so that we could get FDA registration in the U.S. And we did that, and we did that, we did that in six months, whereas other companies take four or five years. I'm not bragging. It's just we have good systems and processes because it's not just about how you make it, how you control it. It's, it's, it's all the other things that go with it that are needed to ensure that you can do this day in, day out and comply. If FDA come here and want to audit us, we're ready at any time. They can walk in the door any time and audit us because we're confident we've got our systems and processes in control. What do you think is your greatest strength in uh, your business? I would say it's um, the intellectual property, the IP we have. No, you. You personally. What's your greatest strength in running your business? I'm a commercial person, basically, end of the day. And the key thing is managing people. And I've always said that even from my earliest days. And you've got to be able to have a good relationship understand your people, um, know when they're having problems, help them when, where you can, treat them fairly, but push them so that they give you the best they can and use as much of this as possible. Listeners, do you have an idea for a future episode of Swarfcast? Or is your company interested in advertising on the Swarfcast podcast? If so please send us an email at swarfcastpodcast at gmail.com. That's swarfcastpodcast at gmail.com. Alec, what's one thing that you'd like to do better? The one thing I'd like to do better? Interesting question. To be honest, I think it would be to have a better life balance would be the one thing I'd really like to do better. And I really, I try to work on it, but I don't think I'm anywhere near So you're near saying it. that you don't work hard enough and you, <laughs> you're, just, you're just playing tennis all the time? I wish I could. <laughs> Only your own business doesn't give you that luxury. <laughs> but it is. And I, I think you only realize those things as you progress through life and um, you, you realize that there's lots of things um, that you need you need to do because we're only here for a short time, you know, and who knows, we, you know, how many summers we've got left. So you take each one and you cherish it. And, and therefore, yeah, I try and balance that. But I, I think I get my balance is more work orientated than leisure and family, which is, and I work, and I work hard enough on changing it. And it's taken me time to do that. Do you, do you think that, I mean, it, uh, you, you've lived in South Africa, um, Zimbabwe. I mean, you haven't lived in Europe or United States at least very long. But is, what, what is the work-life balance in comparison to other places in New Zealand? Is it like uh, Scandinavia where they, everybody's really, you know, they, they only work four days a week? And <laughs> well, it's interesting. I think, um, I think New Zealand is probably in, in the mid-range somewhere. It's not to extremes and not, uh, not the other way where they you know, work really short weeks and you know, 30 hours a week kind of thing. Here, it's, here the standard is 40 hours a week for you know, manufacturing operations, etc. Um, 
we tend to run slightly. We work forty hours, but we work four days a week. So we do work four days a week. Yeah. Oh, but they're ten hours. Okay, okay. My employees get three days off: Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And we use Fridays and Saturdays for overtime or pressure points, you know. You know or, so, and that shift system we introduced four years ago, and it's it used to be just factory floor staff, but it's now spread into other areas because people like that. They, they like a three-day weekend, but still work 40 hours, four days a week. What about you? What do you do? 60, 60 uh, well, hours a week, 80 hours a week. <laughs> um yeah, and no, I don't work eighty hours a week, but but I am have five days a week, and and I do occasionally work on the weekends. But I try and keep my weekends separate from my work because that is my outlet and my family time. So I try and balance that, as I said earlier. I don't always get it right, but um, I think New Zealand actually overall is a very hardworking nation. They're very innovative people. Uh, I think being geographically remote has forced this trend of innovation and self-sufficiency and we have some of the some great innovations that come out of New Zealand for a small country it really punches above its weight in that it, it's very innovative in the dairy industry and the and um, agricultural meat and agricultural um, the world leaders in, in in that sector highest out, highest yields in the world from what I understand and and you'd be amazed in business like ours we see inventors and people who come with ideas some of them are incredible ideas some of them don't never get off the ground because they're just too off the off the wall they're great ideas but you can never get them going but but others are absolutely amazing i mean we have here in new zealand the one of the well he is the best it's a, he's also a machine shop similar to us but much bigger but he produces the best magnets in the world. The best magnets in the world. Interesting. Yep. And so world leader now in terms of um, MRI machines and um, cancer research, you know, photoneuron uh, um, killing cancer cells. I don't know the, the real background to it, but he's a leader in that sector. And he's a, he's a Kiwi. He's a New Zealander. He's done this. Very cool. And now we have... All bird shoes that I'm going to look at. Of course, yeah, that's right. They also from New Zealand, so very good. I see you, you, you're very up to it, so I'm very pleased to Why hear that. Why do they call New Zealanders kiwis? Well, we have a, a the native bird here. It's called. It's it's sort of like a small chicken. Oh. But it's nocturnal and it's got a long, pointy beak, and it's a key. It's called a kiwi. So that's where the term kiwi, kiwi comes from. Okay, I wasn't sure if it was the fruit or okay. Well, there's the kiwi fruit, but the, I think the bird was here before the fruit. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Alec. Thank you, Alec. Really, really enjoyed uh, having you on the podcast. Thank you very much, and I really enjoy your your podcasts and uh, your 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 publications when they come out. I'm, they pop up, and I say, "Well, oh, I'm going to." As soon as it comes on my screen, it's actually a pleasure to read it. So it's been great. Oh, great, my so. self-esteem is is totally <laughs> it's totally rising right now. I'm not joking. And I'm not just saying that they're interesting articles. I, I do enjoy them, and and they're very relative to sort of what we do. And uh, it's great to How see. How did you? When did you discover it? When did you start getting it? From the beginning. From the beginning, I think when you used to post them to us, and it used to take I don't know. Three, four weeks. We were crazy back in the day. We we 
sent out magazines to New Zealand. That's really impressive. Well, and people actually read them. Yes, I think they were, were they around in the 90s? That's uh, what it started in 2000, right? Yeah, early 2000s. Early 2000, right. Early 2000. So, yeah, that's right. We were receiving them here at Accord and at my other business, uh, the other business that I worked in, which is also in metal. And I subscribed to it in the early days, and it would come in the mail in the brown envelope and open it up, and I'd read it, and I'd circulate it to all my team, and they all have a look around and sort of look at this article and look what they're doing in America. And, you know, so we learned quite a few things from your publications in the early days. Oh, that's great. Is there anything you'd want to see uh, different or more of? Or I, I really offhand, I can't, I don't, can't say that um, I want to see more of. I think um, we we do see similarities in the way we do things here to what um, some of your um, interviews have have shown. You know, you've interviewed, I think, um, Sinclair from Australia. Yeah, yeah. Quite a few of your um, um, your American companies who face similar issues, and 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 we can relate to that because this is our kind of business. You know, we all we all in in the machining world, and we all we do face. So it's good to understand that we're not alone, yeah. and we face these challenges, and and the the benefits and rewards that come. Yeah, with Yeah, I see that as you mostly my favorite ones too, and and you can just tell by who downloads it. It's people want to, pe- people like seeing what other people in their business, similar business is doing. That, that doesn't seem to get old. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. And uh, I mean, we see it here. I mean, even with our competitors here in New Zealand, we, we meet every now and then. And, you know, when we talk, yeah, they're having the same sort of issues we're having. So it's interesting from that point of view, but it's also, um, it's helpful to say, yep, and what can we do about it? And sometimes we share ideas, like, you know, we run an apprenticeship program here with um, bringing new recruits in from school and training them up because we can't find skills. And some of our competitors are doing that. And so we share it. We say, well, you send your guys here, and we don't poach staff. We have sort of understanding that, you know, um, we, we don't work like that. We just say, we, if we can help you and they need some training in this sector with CNC CMMs that we have and you don't have, that's fine. And vice versa, they might have um, an area where they, they do welding or something that we want to get our guys through. And we say, right, let them go and work with you for a few weeks just so that they can get the uh, experience in that sector. Right. So we do learn from each other. And we do, we, honestly, we accord tends to be more open to this in general. And we're not afraid of our competitors from that point of view yeah but equally we we're cautious but want to work together because we can learn from each other i know it's it's tempting to want to be cautious uh but i think the research shows that when you when you give you very often receive i mean you never know there are some users out there but still if you're if you lean towards that way it seems like it has good effects we, we think that there's merit in doing it and it's, it's actually worked for us. So we will continue to do that. To do that. But yeah, thank you. It was, thank uh, you, Alec. It was good to talk to you. Um, and hopefully next time I'm uh, up in Chicago, um, I will come in and say hello. 
in person. That'd be great. That would be great. 